Oh my God, God save the queen. Or is it the king? Oh my God, we'll find out later. Anyways, <laughs> RIP to Her Majesty. Anyways, um, we've got a great show today. We're in the green room and uh, we are going to go reverse order for our introductions. Ross, where are you dialing in from or zooming in from today? And what are you talking about? I'm in uh, Midtown Manhattan and uh, just in town to launch my new book, Thriving on Overload. So I thought you were overload to talk about how we can thrive on way too much information. I thought you were in Sydney. Oh my God, I didn't realize that. So welcome, I should have come see welcome. you. All right, you're in New York, live from New York. All right, Chris, where are you dialing in from, talking in from here, so? I'm in beautiful Santa Cruz, California today. Ooh, look at that, sexy voice. All right, what are we talking about? Hi, hi there, hi there, hi there. <laughs> I, I wanna talk about two things today. Uh, the first one is what it's like to get absolutely hammered with Ray. <laughs> and and second of all, I think we should spend an inordinate amount of time talking about Vala's new sexy hairdo. I'm digging the spiky. <laughs> so I want to talk about sexy men and getting drunk. All right. Welcome to the Green Room for Disrupt TV. All right. Back to you, Al. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and co-founder or founder of Constellation Research, Ray Wong. He's a best-selling author of Everybody wants to rule the world. He's a regular television business technology news contributor on Fox Business and Finance, Bloomberg's and CNBC. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Ashar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. And of course, you'll be catching him at Dreamforce 22. So, hey, thanks a lot, Vala. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm doing specially great because, Ray, we've interviewed 901 guests on our show, and one of our favorites is our first guest. Uh, Christopher Lockett is number one Apple podcaster, 12-time number one Amazon best-selling author of a number of books, including Niche Down and Play Bigger. 
His new book titled Snow Leopard, Why Legendary Writers Create a Category of One is what we're going to talk about on today's show. Chris has been an advisor to over 50 venture-backed startups, former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO. He serves as chief marketing officer of a software company, Mercury Interactive, which HP acquired for four and a half billion. <laughs> He's an awesome follow on Twitter at L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. Welcome back, Chris, to the Shrub TV. Vala, let's talk about that hair. So when did we decide to make the decision to go spiky? I, you know, I don't know why. I don't, you know, I, okay, I'll tell you, my, my 12-year-old Did son, you lose weight too, or does it just make you look thinner? I have been swimming a bit. Yeah, no, I think you've been pumping it up. I think you pumped up your hair. You get in your body looking really sexy. Thank you very much. Maybe the new glasses, clear glasses. I don't know. It's a combination of He's thank you for noticing. Dreamforce. <laughs> we're hosting, Dreamforce. We're hosting a little get together. I think one hundred and fifty thousand uh, in, in in the next ten days. So, yes, I have. You have to be both physically and mentally fit for Dreamforce. That's for sure. <laughs> well, it's working out for you. I think. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Chris, hey, we want to at least talk about Snow Leopard, get a conversation about what's going on. But let's start here, though. I mean, you're like the maestro of publishing, right? You keep monetizing in ways like last year. You're like, hey, wait, we can do this. We can create, we can crank out books every other month. Or like, I was like, wow, okay. And I sat there, you know, I was munching on my burger, hanging out with you. We're figuring out all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty cool model. But let's let's start there. I mean, you figured it out. You cracked the code on actually how to monetize in writing in a digital age where everything's free. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I started podcasting five and a half years ago. And everybody said, oh, podcasting, it's already over, and there's too many podcasts, and it's, nobody's going to listen to two people talking for an hour about, you got to edit that shit down, and you shouldn't do it anyway, and rah, 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 rah. Well, uh, Neener Nonner, number one. Uh, and then a year and a half ago, we started Category Pirates as a newsletter. And then we've now been spinning out these books, which we can talk about if you like. But the uh, same thing. Nobody pays for business content. Nobody's going to read a newsletter that's 7,000 words. Nobody reads anymore. They want memes. Well, as we said, I didn't check this morning. But last time I looked, we're the number four paid business uh, newsletter on the planet. And so I guess the thing at the, the start is don't listen to anybody because <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. They really don't. And, and you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, in the last couple of days, uh, a friend of mine sent me an email from the, uh, the very sad and decrepit people who run Fast Company. <laughs> and Fast Company is now uh, soliciting people to enter their draw to see if you can become one of the most innovative companies in the world. And they're only charging you a thousand bucks to enter. And if the judges select you, you get included in their spring issue. And so we're now at a point where traditional business media, particularly the tier two and tier three folks are so pathetic that they do these pay for play things. And um, who knows whether they'll disclose it to their, uh, their audience. The flip side of that is those of us in the digital, native digital creator world are thriving. And so it's amazing to be literally living at a time where we're watching the old melt away and have literally no idea how to create value or revenue. And we're watching native digital creators emerge and become some of the most important thinkers uh, in the world um, 
who are digital first. Well, you certainly have always had a reputation of being a digital pioneer, an amazing storyteller. And in your new book, and I want to just jump into it, if you don't mind, Snow Leopard um, by Category Pirates. Um, it's, it's believed to be the, you know, the first writing book. You're trying to teach us how to write better, how to be great writers, um, ever written through a category design lens. And you write... Uh, when we talk about being great at anything, you're right. The word great implies competition. Uh, in order for you to be great, that means someone else has to be not great, which means the entire goal of becoming great is a never-ending cycle of comparing yourself to anyone and everyone around you and then trying to figure out how you can outgrade them <laughs> until the next person comes along and uh, you have to, again, outgrade uh, again and, and again. you got this vicious cycle. So you said uh, that, uh, unfortunately, uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, this is how most writers spend their entire lives and careers comparing themselves to others in search of greatness. And, and, and ultimately, this book, you talk about you, you're, you're forever stuck in this game of competition. But based on your experience, legendary writers, the ones who stand the test of time, do none of this. Uh, can you explain a, a bit more about how legendary writers differentiate themselves from those who are chasing greatness? Absolutely. Life? So the very front of the book, we write, writers without niches are starving artists. <laughs> writers with niches are category kings. And so the most successful people in the world become known for a category they own. We become, we don't become known brand. We become known for something, category. And what we wanted to do specifically with Snow Leopard, Vala, was we did the largest category science research project ever done on business book sales. We licensed from our friends at Nielsen the data for all of the top-selling nonfiction books for the last 20 years. And under very strict uh, uh, guidelines in terms of what we could and couldn't uh, say about some of the data, because they didn't want data about specific books, by way of example. But um, um, and so we wanted to understand what was selling and what wasn't for several reasons. One, number one, as writers ourselves and, and Ray, to answer your question, the reason, quote, I can be so prolific is because it's not me. Category Pirates, to the best of our knowledge, is the first ever writing band in the business space. We're three guys who have made a commitment to ourselves and our readers to do this work on an ongoing basis. And there's been lots of duos in writing and every once in a while trios, um, but it's very rare for, for there to be an ongoing trio, a, AKA a band. Uh, so that, that's how we get to the prolific. But, but more importantly than that, um, we really wanted to understand A, why certain ideas tip and why others don't. Because if you understand that as a business person, you have a superpower and that superpower is part of what we call category design. Number two, here's the aha for non-writers. We're living at a time where if you are a knowledge worker and or an intellectual capitalist, your ability to succeed in large part is a function of your ability to write. Because with work from home and work from anywhere, how you show up in Slack on a text or in an email matters more now than how you show up in person. And most people can't write. Most writers can't tell you why what they do works and why what they do doesn't work. 
And so we wanted to understand what are the big ideas that scale and through a, a, a category science, data science lens, unpack what was going on. And that's exactly what we, uh, we did with Snow Leopard. Was it difficult to harmonize your thoughts and takeaways when there are three contributors? Yeah, and let's talk about Nicholas and Eddie, right? You've known him for a while, so. Yeah, so so we get asked this question all the time, and and uh, his name is Nicholas Cole. He actually goes by Cole. We all call him Cole. Cole yeah, I know. And he, you know, he's a writer, uh, but uh, <laughs> well, you know, you got to have a thing when you're a writer. Yeah. So his, his thing is call me Cole. Um, but here here's the interesting answer to that question. We came together to write a book, and. This is going to sound like I've lived on the West Coast for way too long and that I've consumed some things already this morning, which I have not, but may later. Um, <laughs> and that is when we started to work on the book, we were instantly in flow. In, and flow. Became, in flow. Please expand on that. As an athlete, I know flow state where you're just at the right place at the right time, right shot. Pass. It's just magic. Uh, is is yes, that what you it's, mean? It's magic. And the thing about flow that's interesting is, is we lose ourselves in flow. We, we lose our self-awareness because we're so engaged in the thing. And Vala, you're right. I think a lot of us get it through sports. Runners talk about runners high. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've run a marathon in my life and so forth. Well, the aha that we had was we get thinkers high. <laughs> and we get going on stuff. Man, I wish I was in the room with you. Oh, my God. That is like yeah. a Jams. Oh God! See, and, three... and we do these epic jam sessions, and we do primary data science research on our own, uh, uh, run by Eddie Yoon. And so we 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 take a data approach and a thinking approach to big problems and big questions and big ideas, and we jam that shit out in exactly the same way uh, Metallica does. As a matter of fact, Metallica uh, hired a coach named Phil Tool, and if you've ever seen the movie Some Kind of Monster, Phil's in that movie coaching Metallica. And so um, we bring in Phil from time to time to help coach our band too, because we think if he did such a good job with Metallica, he'd probably do a good job with us. But the amazing thing is when three people in this case get together and they care about the work and they, they love working together and they, we cut each other off all the time. We're not polite. Um, and, and we just have at it. Um, amazing things happen. And what we discovered here was both data and, and insight. So, for example, on the data side, uh, we studied what are the mega categories of books that sell. And it turns out there's seven of them. And the number one best-selling category by a mile is personal development. 31% yeah. of the nonfiction wow. books yeah. are personal development. And a lot of people in business, they want to write leadership books Mm -hmm. And they want to write sort of uh, my story, my biography, how we did it kind of stories. And here's the interesting thing. Leadership books are number four. They're only 15 percent of nonfiction sales. And the case study, biography, how I did it, aren't I awesome books are only nine percent. And the first two are personal development and personal finance. And so the aha here is something that many of us in marketing and category design have known for a long time, which is no one cares about us. They care about them. And if the reader is the hero in the book, now you're beginning to get something. And a lot of authors want to make themselves, particularly business authors, business books are all about, you know, in some cases, masturbating in public. Well, nobody wants to see that. 
No. That's amazing. That's uh, now there's yeah, a second. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, please. There's a second lens we then apply to it. So that's sort of the data. Uh, and there's a lot more data we can get into if you like. The second lens we apply to it is, okay, so um, uh, what is the um, sort of the big aha about the book? And here's a very powerful lens. We created this thing called the content pyramid. And the top two parts of the content pyramid are obvious ideas and non-obvious ideas. And it turns out you can have ideas that are a combination of the two. So the greatest, the ideas that scale as measured by book sales are personal development. So it matters to me as an individual. And it has a magical combination of a non-obvious insight with an obvious applicability. Oh, wow. And there's a noise we want people to make. Yeah. And the noise goes like this. Huh? <laughs> and so, uh, so for example, if you look at some of the biggest, um, the biggest impact books of the last couple decades, um, you go to the tipping point. Hmm. Well, the tipping point, not obvious before the book comes out. We don't know what that means. So that causes a, huh? And then the obvious subtitle is how little things can make a big difference ah <laughs> you can also do it the other way around you can have an obvious uh, you can have a non an obvious headline and a non-obvious uh subtitle and here's what doesn't work non-obvious non-obvious because people go what you talking about and here's the other one that that can work and can scale obvious obvious but the interesting thing about obvious obvious is it has a very short shelf life. Hmm. So the books that start slower and build over time are almost always personal development that have a mix of non-obvious and obvious. Those are the books that tend to do the best. The obvious obvious are when somebody needs a practical application. So, for example, if you buy a fridge and you're trying to install it yourself in your house, you don't want any fucking non-obvious. You want obvious, <laughs> obvious. Plug this in, do that, do this, do that, and ta-da, your fridge works, right? However, obvious, obvious has a very short shelf life and typically a one use case application. But I'm gonna, other, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ray. No, I, it's, it's completely inobvious that it's obvious. It's amazing. <laughs> so. But you yeah. didn't know this until the research and your latest book. Yeah. So we can make it sound like it was obvious, but unless you pour through the Nielsen data and look at the best-selling books of the last 20 years, none yeah. of this was obvious, Amazing. right? Amazing. None of this was obvious. So, and the interesting yeah. thing about it, we did not want to do this research. We started off looking for it, and we assumed somebody had it. Both mm -hmm. Eddie and I, our first books were published by major publishers, very big-name publishers. We thought they would have this insight. Well, it turns out, according to Nielsen, nobody has done this level of category data science what? to look at what are the top selling books, what's, how do they become top selling, that is to say their strategic use of obvious and non-obvious across the seven categories. And so if you're building a new product, by way of example, why would this matter to you? Well, if you're building a truly breakthrough product, by definition, there's a component of it that's radically non-obvious. And your job from a category design 
sales and marketing perspective is to make your non-obvious breakthrough obvious. That is to say, tipping point, non-obvious idea, how small ideas become big things or whatever the exact subtitle is, obvious application. And what happens in the tech world when people are building uh, new products, new companies, and new categories is they, they're living in a non-obvious, non-obvious world. The greatest creators tend to bend to non-obvious, non-obvious. When Musk com comes out and goes, the boring company, everybody yeah. goes, non-obvious, non-obvious, right? <laughs> and the difference between being a mad person and a legendary creator, entrepreneur, innovator is being able to take your radical non-obvious, your huh, and turn it into a oh. And when the huh goes to an uh at scale, you've now created a best-selling book or a best-selling product and or category-dominating company. Wow. This is amazing. And now, hey, the, the counter to this was your whole notion of content-free content. Let's go there. Like, hammer on that point. Yeah, so, so here's, a, here's a question. When was the last time? Let's just think about this from company's perspective. I, I don't have the data in front of me, but content marketing as a category of spend in marketing is one of the biggest and fastest growing. Sure. It's also the one that is most commonly outsourced to a third party. Think about oh, that for yeah. a second. Yeah. That's point A. Probably more importantly, let's think about this for a second. When was the last time you consumed a piece of corporate content and you went, that was fucking legendary. I'm really glad I consumed that. Never. Why? It's, it's content free. And the reason it's content free is most marketing, especially content marketing, is like a Marriott lobby. <laughs> now, let's... We've been to Marriott lobbies, right, boys? Yes. Yes. They're very nice, yes. I, I just stayed in one, yes. Very pleasant, yes. The scent air kicks in. <laughs> right, and there's a nice person behind a thing, and there's a whole... Th and it's all very nice, right? Yep, yep, yep. And when was the last time you walked into a Marriott lobby and you texted somebody and went, this fucking lobby is incredible. I can't wait to stay here. So most content, uh, whether it's from an individual creator or especially from a company, is purpose-built to be beige. <laughs> and it's radically obvious. So go read some company's white paper on digital transformation. And they're going to start with most digital transformation projects fail. Mm. Here's why they fail. Number one, not enough executive commitment. And then they're going to go through a list of obvious stupidities that if you've been in business for more than 20 seconds, you knew all of this and you go, why the fuck am I reading this obvious, obvious garbage? And that is probably 98% of corporate content marketing. And, and so the question is, if you're a company, what's your radically different point of view around a mm -hmm. giant problem that matters? And how do you bring that point of view to life with a great mix of non-obvious with obvious application, as opposed to regurgitating crap that we've all read and heard over and over and over again? And, oh, by the way, dear Internet, it's September 2022. Can we stop posting photos of ourselves, quoting ourselves? Can we just do that now? Are, are we done with that? We good on that one? Right again. That's a good New Year's resolution. That's it's Wednesday. Go for it. <laughs> we don't need you to post a photo of yourself telling us it's Wednesday and to go for it. We're good. <laughs> content. Okay. Content. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so you, uh, I want to expand on this in terms of advice to business leaders on how to think more clearly, more relevant, and and how to be better communicators. Um, you wrote Peter Drucker is considered father of modern business management. If there was a Mount Rushmore of business thinkers, he'd be on it. And so the category pirates have decided to study Drucker's work and the evolution of his concepts uh, of a knowledge worker. Can you talk to us about what was it about Drucker that pulled you three into now doing another potentially deep analysis, maybe a book, who knows, but you know, w- w- tell us about the project. Yeah, so this is the new big thread that we're pulling on. It will ultimately turn into a book. Um, oh, breaking news on Disrupting Breaking news. news. We're, we're always working <laughs> on the next one. Here's the big unlock. So uh, Drucker, for me, had massive, massive value. And I read him very early. I got thrown out of school at 18. I had to you know, try shit. I had to have mentors, and I had to read shit. And so when I discovered Drucker, it changed everything for me. Wow. Drucker was the first person to create the category called knowledge worker. Mm -hmm. And the insight at the time, which is very clear today, of course, non-obvious, now very obvious, uh, but non-obvious at the time, which is the vast majority of people make money with their muscles. A knowledge worker is somebody who makes money with their mind. Get paid for your mind. Yeah, correct. Now, here's the paradigm of knowledge work. I go to school or some kind of training. I acquire that knowledge. I then get a job because I acquired that knowledge well. I can show grades against that. Again, comparison game, right? And I now get a, quote, good-paying job, often by the hour or certainly by time, applying the knowledge that I acquired in the past to a situation in the present. And the greatest jobs you could get, what did your mother want you to be? I want you to be a doctor. Right. Or a lawyer or a nurse or a pharmacist or an accountant. Right. Or in my case, a government employee, because then you had a pension. Right. A job for life and a union and a pension. You know, I'd rather have a hockey puck to the balls, but that's a different conversation. OK. And then you had your entire career where what you did was apply knowledge that you learned in school and you got ongoing credits for state keeping fresh and this and that and the other. And you were somebody who traded your knowledge in time. Yep. Well, guess what? That was all analog. Hmm. We're now at the greatest change in the history of the definition of what a human being is since human beings went from being hunter-gatherers to farmers. Because the three of us are among the last ever native analogs. Hmm. We're the last generation to grow up where our primary life experience is the analog world, a.k.a. the physical world. And and even though the three of us have had long, very illustrious careers in the digital world, um, our primary experience is still analog, and our secondary experience, as rich as it is, is digital. Well, guess what? If If you're my partner, Cole, it's the inverse of that. Wow. And so... Um, native analogs, as we know them, have existed for roughly 130,000 years. Native digitals have existed for roughly 35 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it is a radical shift in the fundamental definition of what a human being is. Now, why does this matter as it relates to intellectual capital? In the past, if you wanted to create something new, the analog barriers to entry were significant. 
Yes. Yeah. Sure. Today, sure. you can create digital intellectual capital, wrap it in some differentiation, aka a category, and scale that. And so mm -hmm. here's the big aha. Because of the shift from native analog to native digital, we are now shifting from the most valuable, impactful jobs in our world are no longer knowledge workers. Because we can all do this. Hey, uh, Siri, <laughs> how many home runs did Babe Ruth hit? Now, we can't say, hey, Siri, before I do the heart surgery, where do I make the incision? <laughs> so, so we're not quite there yet. Yeah. But the aha, the unlock here is that the greatest jobs in the world are no longer acquire and apply knowledge jobs. The greatest jobs in the world are create net new knowledge, a.k.a. intellectual capital, and scale it digitally. And so the future belongs to the native digital intellectual capitalist. Amazing. And there will be more destruction in the S&P 500 market cap in the next 10 years because the average age of the S&P 500 CEO is 50 fucking eight. Yes. The reason our government doesn't work is because the vast majority of people in government are governing a world that does not exist. The reason our education system doesn't work is because we are training people for an analog world that doesn't exist and they don't want to do the bitch work, knowledge worker jobs that we did. They want to be intellectual capitalists. And the vast majority of native analogs have no idea what we just talked about. Wow. Hey, before we go, I can't let you go without so talking about Jake and MMA. What's up with Jake Paul and MMA? Jake Paul. He's fighting the Silva, right? Is he? Jake, Jake Paul is uh, fighting Anderson Silva. And Jake Silva. Paul is a legendary example of this. The entire fight world is... Yep. I follow a traditional analog path. I work my way up. I earn my way up. Da, 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 da. And after 15 professional fights, if I'm really amazing, I, I hopefully beg somebody for, I beg a promoter for a shot at the title. Jake Paul says, fuck all that. He goes out and he builds his own digital world. He becomes a digital creator and creates net new intellectual capital, builds a radical audience and millions of dollars doing it turns himself into his own promoter and starts calling out professional fighters. And before you know it, he hasn't worked his way up the system. He didn't beg Dana White for a contract. He didn't do any of that stuff. He is a self-made native digital intellectual capitalist who's now monetizing analog events in the digital world. And he has, he has created a whole new category of native digital uh, uh, um, uh, combat sports athlete. That's true. Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether you, you like him or you hate pay, him. He yeah. can afford to pay Anderson Silva. Mm -hmm. There are numbers out there that says he's guaranteeing Anderson Silva $10 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, if that's true, uh, I would guarantee you virtually that the likelihood Anderson ever had a guaranteed $10 million fight is pretty much zero. And yep. so you have a 20-something-year-old quote-unquote kid who, because of the fact that he has approached this through a native digital lens and... There are no rules when you create your own intellectual capital and a new category of digital entertainer. So he's gone and done that, and now the audience is there. And when he fights Anderson Silva, I'm buying the pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> and Silva, for those of you who don't know, Silva is a legend, an absolute legend. He had a long streak, maybe one of the longest in MMA of wins. Most I mean, people consider him the greatest pound-for-pound -pound fighter yeah, ever. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. And he well, had a gruesome leg point. injury 
that kind of oh. sidelined him. I mean, a gruesome, like he just compound fracture based on a kick. Uh, but so I believe if it wasn't for that, uh, he would have had even a more illustrious career. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But the, the point here is a, there's a Jake Paul coming in every space. Yep. Look at living golf. Correct. And so you're either going to be that uh, intellectual capitalist who harnesses the native digital world, or you're going to be like most native analogs who are fighting with their employees to get them to quote unquote, come back to work, <laughs> come back to work. If you're a native analog, work is not a physical place. It's a digital space. And the minute you say come back to work, you're just demonstrating how far out of touch you are with the native digital world. Wow. All right. We are here with legendary legend. Lockhead, 12-time number one bestseller, number one biz podcaster and category designer. His new book, Snow Leopard, along with his two friends, Cole and oh, what's your last? What's the other guy? Sorry, Eddie, Eddie, legendary Eddie Yoon. <laughs> By the way, how great is it that his name is Eddie, not Edward, not Ed? <laughs> his, his name is Eddie. Eddie, Eddie. Yeah, I love that. Eddie, I love follow, that. Follow at Lockhead, and of course, we'll see you in Half Moon Bay. I hope we'll work that. Out. Oh yes, I'm, uh, I'm coming whether you invite me or not. <laughs> great, great to with you. I'm gonna grow my hair. hair. And Vala have a legendary dream force. What you guys do at dream force is, is beyond legendary. It's an inspiration to the entire industry. It's a call for a vendor to have the most important event in our industry is an extraordinary achievement. Hats off to you, Benioff. And of course, everybody at Salesforce have a legendary dream force. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. Thank you. Man, he always expands my mind. Always, always. I always walk away. Just, just, uh, speaking of expanding our minds, Ross Dawson, futurist, parallel entrepreneur, keynote speaker, author of five books, including his latest book, which we all need, I surely need, Thriving on Overload. Uh, Ross is globally recognized as a leader, futurist, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, best-selling author. Ross is in strong demand globally, having delivered keynote speeches and strategy workshops, workshops as well, not just keynotes, in over 30 countries across six continents for the biggest companies in the world. Just list the largest market cap companies and Ross has been in front of them. Uh, Ross is founding chairman of the Advanced Human Technologies Group of Companies and founders of the Bondi Innovation. His latest book is Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information which I believe came out last week, if I'm not mistaken. This week. Ross, this week. This week. September 6th. That's right. This week. Uh, Ross has been named as one of the most influential people in the world in the future of work, fintech, crowdfunding, Enterprise 2.0, and by Digital Media Magazine as one of the 40 biggest players in Australia's digital age. You can follow him on Twitter, early adopter, first and last name, Ross Dawson, R-O-S-S-D-A-W-S-O-N. Welcome, Ross, to Disrupt TV. Hey, awesome to be here. So, <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I was actually really uh, encouraged by what Christopher was saying because I think that it kind of fits his template. So the, the thriving on overload is personal development. Thriving overload, huh? Oh. <laughs> That's right. Uh -huh. those, oh, sounds, those sounds are going to come out of every chapter of your book. Absolutely. That's, the, that's right. <laughs> no, well, it's not great to have you now in play so but hey ross really good to have you here it's been a long time since seeing you in person you know 
and you know definitely definitely one of legendary futurists and of course very very pragmatic approaches to business and business transformation and change you've been there uh, you pointed out a fact that in 2020 66 percent of americans were worn out right i'm sure everybody around the world was as well with the news with the information all the channels right being you know this is really one of those things that have kind of been you know taxing our time and you say that this surplus can actually be used to our own advantage so what do you mean by that so the it's just a fact that we have a finite amount of cognitive capacity you know human brains where human brains is the most amazing thing on the we in the known universe it's absolutely incredible but it is finite it is limited in lots of ways we can measure them in fact how limited it is and we live in a world which is essentially infinite un unlimited information so this doesn't work. We, we, we can't cope. We can't keep up. In fact, if we try to keep up, then we're going to lose that game. So the issue is how do we turn that around? And it really starts from changing our mindset from instead of saying, OK, well, we have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always, always going to be behind. I'm always going to be stressed. I'm always going to be overwhelmed. We can say, well, whatever my objectives are, I have all of the information I could possibly want to achieve my objectives. So it's shifting to abundance. So you can pick and choose what it is which will support your objectives and discount the rest. And obviously that's a little, little easier said than done. But this is really starts from that mindset. We can thrive on overload or unlimited information. In fact, every person you know, every successful entrepreneur, everybody that's uh, achieved in business or entrepreneurships or in corporate world, is good at this already. They're already excellent at, uh, at thriving on a massive amount of information. So these are what I call the information masters. But all of us, me, and even though both of you are absolutely information masters, you can also improve. Everybody can also identify what are the ways in where, from where I am now, I can improve. And I try to just lay that out as much as possible in the framework in the book. You know, these are the elements, these are the way they fit together, these are the practices, these are the ways in which we can refine and get better at what is basically the fundamental skill for success in the world today. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your kind words. I see Ray on, on uh, mainstream media television almost daily talking about vast uh, variety of topics. So he's definitely an information master. I have to be selectively ignorant about many things so that I can actually try to deeply understand some things. Uh, so I don't consider myself information master, but I want to talk about, so you, you have a reputation of being able to frame, frame concepts where people can relate to it. They can understand it. You have an ability to articulate very clearly your trends and vision and potential outcomes that come to come to fruition. So I want to talk about, uh, or can you talk to us about the five powers, that can help us manage information uh, overload. Uh, and it could be any one of the five that you think is most important or, or, or as, as many as you'd like to cover. Well, well, the, I mean, the subtitle says the five powers. So the five powers are purpose, uh, which is basically knowing why. Why on earth do I want information at all in the first place? What is it I want to achieve? Uh, second is framing, really fundamental one, which is building the knowledge frameworks that support our understanding. Third is filtering, to be able to discern, get better at discerning what is useful and uh, not useful. Attention, which I think is really critical, is sort of saying it's not just we've got attention, we don't have attention, but these are uh, how do we 
uh, allocate our attention in different ways with intention so that we know why we are doing that. And, and finally, synthesis, which is that master capability of taking all of those pieces and pulling them together to make sense. And I think one, one of the, one which is perhaps a little less evident than the others, and I think in this, all of these are things which people are familiar with, but one which is done less, and you alluded to that, Valerie, is, is framing, is building the knowledge frameworks because we're exposed to all this information and just being aware of that information doesn't help us. We need to piece that together to build our mental models, to build the frameworks for understanding, to be able to see, uh, have a model where we, as information comes in, we can see, ah, that fits there. Or, oh, that doesn't fit, so I better adjust my model. And you can fit, having those frameworks are fundamental to be able to filter the information coming in on all sides and are also just one of these... Uh, basic uh, foundations where we can use visual frameworks. So it's just actually you know, listening to another cognitive psychologist on a um, podcast this morning, just around just all of the weight of evidence that visualization and spatial representation are in fact the foundation for our cognition, the way in which we pull together ideas, the way we perceive the world. So we can facilitate that by building frameworks explicitly and that becomes an extraordinarily accelerator, an enabler of the pace and extent to which we can build constructive knowledge. Ross, I don't remember learning frameworks in school, undergrad or grad. Uh, maybe if I pursued my doctorate, I would have learned framing. Uh, but, but it, you know, and it's what our prior guest talked about, just things that are lacking in, in education. Uh, it, do you, did you ever have classes? Or did you... Well, no, no, never. Okay. So, so I kind of, I've self, well, I've had got a few, you know, bits of education along the way, but I'm basically an autodidact. I teach myself stuff. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, that's one of the things I've just, from when I was young, I was kind of like crazy. Why, why aren't we teaching this most yeah. fundamental skill of all? No. You know, this ability to learn, to how to learn, to the right. ability Learning to how to learn and then communicate your Ray and I have our, our eldest, are now sophomores in, in great schools. And, and, we're, and we're both paying a bit of a tuition. <laughs> These are great schools. And I just, when I listen to thought leaders like yourself and folks that have accomplished big things, and again, I don't mean, it's like our previous guest, there's obvious things that you are teaching us. And I'm like, but they're not obvious because I went through seven years of schooling after high school and I didn't learn any of this. <laughs> so, you know. It's, well, it's, well I, one of the reasons why we have to change, you know, introduce these into our formal education mm -hmm. from K to 12 to, you know, post, you know, graduate, postgraduate and lifelong learning is that this is, in fact, not just fundamental to our ability to do the intellectual capitalism uh, work that uh, Christopher talked about, which is you know, the foundation of basically all work today. It is actually fundamental to our democracy. One of the reasons why democracy is getting even more broken these days is that people are not able to make sense of and to uh, vote, make choices around who to vote for in a world of overwhelm, which is subject not only to misinformation and disinformation, but just simply too much, can't process, not able to participate in you know, the, a democratic society, which I want to make. And so the future of our democratic world includes 
the ability to help people to handle all of this. You no, know, it's a great point, right? I mean, we cannot make logical decisions anymore. The overload's intentional to push on emotional buttons, and we lose sight of what a probable model looks like or what probabilities or what spectrums are. And you touch upon this very clearly when you talk about the six attention modes. Let's talk a little bit about that because, I mean, when you are overloaded, you don't realize which attention modes have you been hit on. And so let, let's talk. Yeah, let's start there. So. so the key point here is that it's not as if we either are focused or not focused. We, our attention has many different guises, and we need to understand that there are different attention modes. So we're thinking about information, how we deal with information, identify six different modes which we need to engage with. One is scanning. Do we look through all of the headlines, all the things out there to pick out what is it that might be interesting to me? Second is assimilating, where we're actually, okay, I'm sitting down. This I found something which is really useful. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to assimilate that and assimilate that into my frameworks, into my metal model, into my thinking. So you're spending some time with that. You've got exploring. So you're saying, okay, well, I've got my usual sources. I'm going to venture out somewhere else and find some other stuff. But do it in a way which is not just sort of wandering around. Is where you design the serendipity. So you find the stuff mm. which is particularly cool, you're able to stumble across things in interesting ways. You're seeking uh, things in new ways. Um, deep diving, which is critical. And I think one of the things I've distilled in sort of just the quick lessons, you know, if you say, okay, one of the few things to do out of my book, one is say everybody should have at least two hours every week, which is dedicated to one thing where everything else is switched off. Nobody's going to interrupt you unless it's the end of the world. And you just keep yourself to that. You know, maybe a couple of breaks, for five minutes in between. You're developing your capacity for focus. And you're just mm -hmm. into the zone. You're not in and out, in and out, as our multitasking world has led us up. You've got one time of focus. And the sixth attention mode, which is critical, is regenerating. Because, again, plenty of sciences and research has shown us that our attention degenerates. We're not able to sustain infinite attention for a long time and regenerating again being demonstrated to be particularly valuable in nature so exposing ourselves to trees or walks outside or even looking at the clouds or even even faces of other people and engaging in conversation with other people they're natural things as well so these are all these are these six modes and we can time box our day say okay well, i'm going to spend enough time on scanning but not too much i'm going to spend some time assimilating. I'm going to spend some time deep diving. It's been some time regenerating. And this is an incredible amplifier of our productivity to be intentional around where we put our attention through the day. That's such great advice. That is so, I can imagine if you were deliberate about 104 hours throughout a year, 52 weeks times two hours, pick a topic, something that interests you. Maybe it's an emerging technology. Maybe it's you know, uh, I, I, books from greater authors that you admire, 104 hours of uninterrupted time in a year. Imagine the capacity of learning and yeah, and sharing. And I would say you do that a few years and you're probably in the top 1% of most topics. <laughs> you could really be considered better experts. Yeah. And, and if you find joy in it, and you have to, if you want to be uninterrupted for two hours, I'm betting Ray hasn't had a two hour uninterrupted moment in the last five years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's only one hour. That's only one hour. Uh, but uh, 
No, it, it, it's great. So, so again, so synthesizing is also the the, 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 the fifth superpower uh, that that you talk about. Um, can you give us an example of, of 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 someone we may all know or someone you admire who's demonstrated the ability to synthesize and 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 gain benefits from it? Well, I suppose the you know if you come back to who 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 can you think of who's successful? <laughs> They're probably a good synthesizer, and and the, sort of the, the very obvious examples are your Elon Musk's and Warren Buffett's and so on. The sure, they just sure, sort of take sure. lots and lots of stuff and pull that together. Makes sense. That is part of the capability. But I think there's some categories of people who are good synthesizers, and you know, in particular, those you know, if you are working in VC, you know, venture capital, for example. You need to be able to pull together, and you, you know, to be successful in any case, you have to pull together the pieces to get a sense of how the pieces fit together in a, how, not just how an existing industry landscape works, but how that can evolve over time and see how that former shape might, might evolve. The only way in which you can get a, intuit a future industry landscape is through having a true rich synthesis of the current system. This is systems mm. thinking. This is understanding right. how the elements interrelate. It's seeing the pieces that other people don't see and piecing those together so that you can have this. It is, you know, synthesis literally seeing the whole, not the pieces, yeah. pulling those together. And this is a skill which we can develop. You know, our analytical education, our analytical jobs and careers and structures are all around slicing and dicing things into smaller and smaller pieces. And that's eroding many people's ability, natural ability to synthesize, to pull together, to see the whole. And that's, again, something which we can nurture in ourselves. And there's a series of practices in the book about how to do that. Musk, uh, Musk advocates first principles as a yeah. methodology that he uses to better understand the whole. Does the book reference certain models uh, and and methods of, of learning how to synthesize it in not a formulaic way, but a structured way? Yeah. Well, the, the framing and the synthesis chapters fit together in a way. So the synthesis yeah. is, in a way, how do we access the power of our unconscious mind? Mm -hmm. So our conscious mind is analytical, the unconscious mind is synthesis, and there's many ways we can evoke those states of mind. Okay. The framing chapter looks at the different structures for frameworks. And one of them, the three uh, basic structures I identify are trees, networks, and systems. And in fact, I use a quote that Elon Musk, uh, you know, said he was once asked, "So how do you, how do you understand, you know, so many different things?" And it says, "Well, you have to build a kind of tree of knowledge. You have to know what the trunk is. You need to know where the branches yes. are, so you can know where the other branches fit and where the leaves and the fruit uh, become." And so that structure of a tree or a hierarchy is one model. Another framework is the networks and saying this whole lattice of how these ideas connect and the other is the systems where you get the positive and the balancing uh, feedback loops. And all of these structures or mental structures or ways in which you are building concepts together into a model are fundamental to this seeing of the whole, to the synthesis, to be able to build solid mental models of the world. Now, you talk about this need of developing information overload work cap capabilities to improve not just our minds, but our physical well-being. I'm thinking about this also helps our mental health, right? Up to a quarter million people are suffering from mental illness. It takes about a trillion off the global economy. Um, talk about how this could help. 
Well, there's a couple of aspects of that. One is simply that if we are in a state of overwhelm, this triggers an you know, unfortunate balance of uh, neurochemicals activating our amygdala, moves into a fight and flight response, and we are a less a cognitively able, so we're less able to deal with the overwhelm. So there's a very negative cycle which we get engaged with. So one of the things, the first thing is we do need to take those initial steps. Uh, one is you know, coming back to that mindset that we talked about at the beginning, getting off this frame of feeling you have to keep up because keeping up is impossible. So don't try to do it. So that's a, the first step. And to be able to obviously you know, some of the things chunk down. All right, let's chunk down from the many, many things that got to keep on trough of to here are a few. This is something which is contained and pulling that back. But I think another key aspect of this, if we think about our purpose for dealing with information, one of the critical aspects of that is our well-being, our information that feeds our ability to be well, to be healthy mentally and physically is part, should be part of our information diet. So we're building that fundamental understanding of what it is we can do, how it is we can shift our habits to keep across new information over time. So this ability to deal well with overload of information is in fact really fundamental to our physical well-being yeah. and of course our mental well-being how long have you been using these five building blocks to shape your content and thinking and the futurist work that you do and and the follow-up is at what point did you realize that you know i need to write a book what was the reason for you to write this uh, your fifth book um, was it a aha moment that, oh, wow, when I reflect on the success I've had, I've had five muscles that I've been using that's helped me deliver content that people care about. And uh, so I'm interested to know the process of writing the book and what was the catalyst behind it. So, so the, the ideas are 25 years old. Well, they're really longer, but that's when I've got evidence. I did write down thriving on information overload. So I wrote a piece of paper 25 years ago. <laughs> At the time, that's awesome. At the that's time, great. I was uh, I, I was my first company, and I just had my first company. My first service was going to investment banks and says, "I'm going to help train your dealers and uh, research analysts and so on how to make create value from unlimited information." And I was I was a little ahead of my time, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, the, the I was I had a whole programs. So I did run some workshops, and I did some I did do some work with a number of clients around that at the time. And then I, I was, so this was always something which was there. Then in 2009, I registered the domain thriving on overload. Yeah. Was, wow. Okay, wow. 25 yeah. years ago, you had the idea. 12 years ago, you registered. Oh my goodness. So this, I kind of feel bad because, sad because I feel like your next greatest hit is going to be 10 years from now. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing how much it's been percolating with you. Wow, this is great. This is I great. remember a discussion at the White Horse in Surrey Hills. Oh, wow, yes. We were talking about this. Oh, right. Wow. And we talked about this in a decade ago. Like 2010 or 11, maybe even yeah. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you've been baking this delicious book for years. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, well, if you're well, if you're wanting the story, in fact, I wrote a proposal for a different book. About <laughs> so my book was about how to see and create the future, and so so it was all this. I spent ages on writing the proposal, got it out to these top agents, and all of the agents told me can't sell this book. It's really hard to sell books about the future. But one agent who was brilliant, Jim Levine, he said, "There's one chapter 
title in this uh, proposal. It's called Thriving on Overload. If you make that into a book, I can sell that. And so <laughs> the thing was- and Jim Levine is the legendary business book agent. Yeah. So yeah. One of the top so, ones. So I, so the, the magic of it was that I wrote Thriving on Overload. And in fact, I've included just about everything I was going to write in the original book about <laughs> seeing and creating the future anyway, because it really yes. is about how do we make sense of information to be That's able to awesome. see the future. That's awesome. Oh my God. That's this true. is going to be funny. I'm looking at the um, endorsements and I can't remember what I wrote for you. And then I'm looking at this and, and Chris Lockhead would love this. A great refactoring is among us. Digital natives are competing with legacy analogs in almost every aspect of our lives. Right. How we harness both the plethora and the power of information will determine the winners and losers in this dynamic economy. This much read book shares the pragmatic secrets of how to overcome being overwhelmed and how to own information. Wow. Wow. Uh, turn information into an unfair advantage. Man. I want to know all the sticky notes that Ross has right now with ideas of next books. <laughs> That's awesome. That's very cool. Wow. We are here with one of the top futurists in the world, Ross Dawson, parallel entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author of five books, including this new one that came out three days ago, Thriving on Overload. Check it out wherever books are sold, and of course Amazon. So thanks, a, thanks a ton for thank being you, here Ross. and following Thank you, so much. Ross Dawson. Thank you. So thank you, thanks. You are getting an executive MBA on steroids every week here at Disrupt TV. You really are. You really are. And and we both guests. I'm not ashamed to say we could have had a two-hour conversation, two hours with both of them. Um, I couldn't stop listening to both, and I would have loved to deep dive into all five elements, all the six attention models, and ultimately, like, what can I do right now to be able to synthesize better? How, again, I, I don't have the training in terms of how to frame complex topics into something that's digestible, that potentially can be actioned upon. Uh, yeah, I just think about all the schooling and, and even the early career where, you know, as Chris said, most of us kind of rented our time. We I were know. given tasks with very little to no equity. <laughs> and uh, we just kind of nose to the ground, get the job done, you know, eight to five. Uh, it was never eight to five for me because I, you know, as as immigrants, we have different uh, yep. maybe work yep. work ethics. Yep. For me, a 60 hour week was a light week. Uh, <laughs> but but anyway, Ray, your takeaways of two extraordinary people that have just spent an hour expanding our minds. Well, you know what? This, this is part of the great refactoring. What we are seeing is that those who see a brand new path, who are wearing the pioneer brand new path, are, are, are doing it right. And and these are these are some of the next set of management gurus and leaders in the world. Uh, sometime last week, I was sitting with a friend, and, and we're just like, you know, we're looking at conferences, looking at keynote speakers. We're like, where did all the management gurus go? Like all the people we used to revere, like they've all retired. You know, some of them have passed, right? Uh, some have left things around. You know, like I mean, they're just they're just not all there anymore, and they've all retired. A great generation of management thinkers are gone. And then you know, we're, as we're talking about this, like you know, like this twenty-five-year-old walks in and says, uh, "Aren't you guys those people?" <laughs> <We're> like, <"No." laughs> I don't even think we come to that level of great. Wow. But these folks wow. really like we that and another meeting about four weeks ago where I go to the person next to me and I say, oh, my God, we're the grownups in the room. This meeting is like a complete, you know, show. It's like, what the hell's going on here? Right. And then and the, and the girl comes to me and says, uh, you're the adult in the room. Can you go fix this? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. You know, we're going to have Tom Peters back on our show. When I think of living legends, when I hear of names like Clay Christensen, 
Peter Drucker and Tom Peters. And we're fortunate that we both know him. Uh, he's been on our show multiple times. In fact, the only show that cracked 200,000 views on Disrupt TV has been Tom Peters. Um, and he came, even the second appearance came close. So he's one of our most popular well, guests and he's a living legend in my opinion. We're going to build the next set of legends here. Um, yeah. Bala, we are. We got Ross Dawson, Chris Lockhead. Yeah. Who right. I mean, who's coming next week? Okay. Uh, well, okay. So you say that and this is not coincidental. It may appear coincidental, but this next name that I'm going to talk about on our show next week is one of the deepest thinkers we know, Byron Reese, who's the CEO of uh, J.J. Kent and author of Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think. I love that title because it makes no sense to me. <laughs> the the not-so-obvious, and I'm sure the byline will be obvious, but uh, clearly Byron, who's a best-selling author, knows how to create the, the, that moment of uh, uh, grabbing attention. And then John Landry and Howard Wolk, who are authors of Launchpad Republic. So we have three uh, fantastic it's, authors. That is an amazing book. It's about America's edge and why it matters, right? Why we have the entrepreneurial edge in this country, right? So, awesome. so maybe we are seeing the next set of Renaissance thinkers, I hope. <laughs> you know, it's, Ray, We this was episode 292. We crossed uh, 900 interviews with Chris and Ross. They were 900 and 901. <laughs> so uh, it's surely when you look at the roster of the 900 interviews, there are definitely legendary thinkers. Uh, and it's a privilege for you and I to have the opportunity to learn from these folks. You and I, one hour a week, even though you're on TV every day talking to, you know, big wigs, I look at my Twitter stream and you guys are like, hugging tim cook and yourself uh which is like wow that's my co-host with tim cook that's, that's pretty awesome uh, so you know even though you know we, we think we're doing you know decent amount of good work the caliber of folks that come and share their knowledge yeah. with us are at just we have amazing level. guests if you got thank suggestions you. please let us know we're looking thank for you. them every week and of course thank you for being part of this bigger disrupt tv community so thank you everyone if it's friday it's disrupt see you next week cheers